All right, everyone, we have another shout out on the show. This time we have a $20 patron, one of those coffee maniacs, Nathan Keller. Thank you for your donation. Thank you, Nathan. And make sure to watch out for your coffee mug. That'll be coming to you very shortly. If you want a coffee mug like Nathan or some other Kriegs over coffee swag or just a shout out on the show, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash over coffee and find out how you can get some fun. So Nick, I just got my second dose of the COVID vaccine, so I'm super excited. Way to go. Yeah, I'm not feeling that great, but um, I still am really glad that I got this vaccine and I was able to read much more about it on the OBG Project's website where they have a ton of great information on COVID-19, both in and out of pregnancy. Yeah, the OBG Project, again, has an excellent online library. When you go straight to their website, obgproject.com, there's things ranging from COVID information, primary care information, the second trimester ultrasound atlas, grand rounds reports. There's just a lot of really, really useful stuff. You can also sign up for OBG First, which is their subscription service, um, where you can have access to all of the above, as well as create your own bookshelf so that you can go back to all the articles that you like to read about. So if you want to get a free year of OBG first. If you're a chief resident, head on over to our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. Check out the sidebar and there'll be a link there for you to get your free year of OBG first. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we're going to be talking about a very important topic. We are going to be talking about vulval vaginal complaints in the pediatric population. So Nick, what are our learning objectives for today? So we'll start off discussing just some common complaints in the pediatric population. Um, we'll next talk about differences in the physiology of the pediatric population and how this can contribute to pathology. Next, we'll learn about key steps of how to do a pediatric pelvic exam, um, which I think is a really important topic um, that often gets missed in our training. And then lastly, we'll talk about the next steps in management and referral, um, looking towards a like PAG specialist. So I guess, Faye, let's just kind of start off with introductions, because again, I think that this is really like a topic, again, that I alluded to that kind of gets glossed over in our training, um, and we don't see a lot of kids. Right. So today, I mean, we're going to specifically talk about the prepubertal population, and that is a very wide age range, which could be a newborn all the way to adolescence. A lot of these things that we're going to be talking about relate to um, prepubescent, uh, the prepubescent population specifically, but certainly a lot of these can also occur um, in adolescence as well. I would say that, you know, the biggest thing that I want to kind of begin with before we dive into the depths of what we're going to talk about today is that for the pediatric population, many times when they come and see you, that is going to be the first time that they see a gynecologist. And so I always feel like while you want to make sure that all of your patients are comfortable in your office um, during your exams, that this is especially important because this may shape how that patient sees OBGYNs for the rest of their life. They may be referred by their family medicine doctor or by their pediatrician with a question about something, and they could have had an issue that has been present for a while. And the patient also will most likely come with a parent or other close relative or guardian. And part of navigating the visit is going to be a 
acknowledging and discussing the anxieties, concerns, and complaints of that other individual as well. So you're not, you usually don't just have one patient sitting with you. Hmm. Nick, let's talk a little bit about what are some common complaints and kind of how to approach what is going on in the pediatric population specifically. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the common things that come out from pediatric gynecologic visits can be things like itching, discharge, pain, irritation in the vulvovaginal area, issues with going to the bathroom. Um, you know, make some kids have issues with leaking urine, um, losing that developmental milestone of urinary continence over time. Um, and so there are some like simple issues and then there are more complex issues, certainly. Um, I think what's even more challenging is just trying to approach what's going on um, because you need to get to those questions you want to know about, but there's a lot more that stands in the way, I think, even with a pediatric patient than you have with your adult patients. Again, you got to start off with getting the trust of the patient. And again, as OBGYNs, I think we take pride in that to some degree. Again, we talk to our patients about very intimate issues, their sexual health, their reproductive lives, their relationships. Um, But doing that with a kid is different. Um, Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, the pediatricians really are good at this. Um, And kind of I remember shadowing pediatricians in medical school and just like watching and marveling at them as they kind of like took a kid who was like, I hate the doctor to now like I'm able to do whatever I want and get at the issues I need to get at with the child. Yeah. Um, some strategies that you can employ can be things like stickers, coloring books, asking them about their school life and their best friends, you know, getting on the same page as them. Certainly if the child's old enough to speak for themselves, getting it straight from their mouths is really important too. You want to know like what is the thing that is really defining the problem for them. Um, and then after that, you know, if you need to get supporting information from the parent or guardian, you should actually tell the child or ask them really for permission to talk with their parent or guardian to get more information about what's going on. It's just respectful to the child, um, and it still allows them to feel like they're an important part of this visit, which they are. For adolescent patients, on the other hand, you know, they are kind of increasing in independence and agency. Um, and so in this case, it's actually a good idea to have the parents or guardians step out of the room at that time to allow for asking of those same sensitive questions that we are used to asking as gynecologists and assessing risks for things like safety at school, in the home, um, people who they don't get along with in their neighborhood or folks who may be hurting them. Um, this is also an adolescence, a time that kids are experimenting with drugs, alcohol, and tobacco. And so children may feel guilty about using. Um, and this is a time to, again, have a healthy relationship with a physician and start those conversations. You can even start off by asking if their friends or family use any of those substances before broaching the subject with them. And then sexual activity certainly is the other one that kind of comes up and you can kind of approach this again in the same type of way of starting off small with you have anybody at school you might like have you held hands or kissed someone before um, before moving into again more sexual activity those questions that are the higher risk behaviors so Faye I guess kind of getting the trust and getting like the basic historical pieces but we still want to get at some specific questions right right exactly um so I think you know 
some things that you may want to ask specifically about vulvovaginal complaints that may be a little bit different or maybe even similar to your adult patients um, include things like showering or bathing habits. So, you know, sometimes little girls may want to take bubble baths and they may really enjoy that. Um, you want to ask what types of soaps that they use because all of these things can irritate um, the vulvovaginal area and can cause um, certain symptoms like itching or discomfort. You also may want to ask them about wiping and toileting themselves because, you know, past a certain age, they're going to the bathroom by themselves. Um, and you want to ask specifically, like, how are they wiping? Um, and sometimes you can even ask the child to demonstrate over their clothes and, you know, um, be able to correct behavior if they're wiping back to front instead of front to back. Um, and then also, you know, asking about choice of clothing or clothing that they often wear due to hobbies or activities. So for example, if a child is in um, dance class and they wear a lot of leotards or tights, or if they're an active swimmer and they're, you know, in their swimsuits a lot or sitting in their wet swimsuits for a long time, all of these can certainly lead certainly lead to irritation and itching and things like that as well. Um, so you want to ask how long they're wearing all of these during the day, what kind of underwear they're wearing. Also, like if they're wearing pajamas, um, certainly we want to encourage things like wearing cotton pajamas, wearing, um, you know, using um, soaps and shampoos and things like that that are hypoallergenic. Um, and also, you know, even encouraging things like airtime at night. So just having like a nightshirt or a nightdress and not wearing any underwear at that time. What about the exam, Nick? I think, you know, we are, of course, used to doing pelvic exams um, on people. Very specifically, we're used to using speculums. Um, and, you know, it seems like a lot of a lot of people at least like know what to expect when they come to the gynecologist. Yeah. But it is a little bit different with kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, just for starters, most children haven't had a pelvic exam. Um, and so that's going to be a very, very different type of environment or feel for them. Um, and one that certainly is invasive, as with your adult patients, you certainly experience the very similar anxieties and apprehensions about that. The good news is, is that most do not require a speculum exam. And so really, you should strive to leave the speculum in the drawers when you're dealing with pediatric patients. Again, in addition to your usual exam, the things you're going to be looking at, you're going to be checking for breast development, whether it's um, normal or abnormal breast development, such as like with precocious puberty and younger children. Um, you should check for abdominal masses as well on an abdominal exam. Um, and then with the pelvic exam itself, kind of there's a couple of different things that you can do to facilitate the exam. A child could be, for instance, laid back on an exam table in a frog-legged type of position. Um, and you could also have the parent sit on the exam table and hold the child in that position as well, not holding the child down specifically, but holding the child in a supportive way. Careful external examination should really win the day and be the meat of the exam that you do. Um, you can kind of use a downward traction motion from the legs to kind of spread the labia and look at the urethra and the hymenal ring. Look for things like skin changes on the labia, if they're red or white or kind of thin in appearance. Note if there are any labial adhesions, which are a common complaint and issue. Um, purulent discharge or other types of discharge can often be seen on underwear as well that allow you to do a less invasive exam. 
You can also use a Q-tip test to examine for a patent vagina, um, looking for something that would be blocking the opening to the vagina, like the imperforate hymen. And then foreign objects that can't easily be removed, that aren't sitting right there, um, shouldn't be done in the office with smaller children. Um, you may actually need vaginoscopy to perform the removal safely um, and in an atraumatic way for the child. But we'll kind of stop there for now talking about exam because, again, we talked that there's a number of things that can bring the child in to see a gynecologist. So let's talk through some differential diagnoses. Sure. So um, the first thing I wanted to bring up was infectious causes of um, certain complaints like itching or pain. And I want to say that, you know, unlike our adult population or older adolescent population, infection is actually not that common of a diagnosis in children who have mm. vaginal complaints. Um, so certainly everything that is possible in adults is possible in children, but it's just not as common. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was a was yeast infection or candida. So while it's possible to have yeast infection in children who have had recent antibiotic treatment or if they're immunocompromised or if they're wearing diapers, it's not that common in normal prepubertal girls, um, unlike in women. And so usually, too, the yeast is uh, in appearance on the outside, kind of like a diaper rash or diaper dermatitis. And so usually um, when you see this, there may be like a red appearance to the skin. It may be um, in the pattern of a diaper um, or underwear, for example. And in those cases, you can use topical antifungal agents like nystatin, clitrimazole, or myconazole to treat the candida. Other possibilities include things like Gardnerella vaginalis, which um, of course causes bacterial vaginosis. But again, not very common. You can probably diagnose this in the same way that you would in a woman. You don't necessarily need to put in um, a speculum, but you can certainly diagnose it by looking at the vaginal discharge and using Amsel's criteria that way. And finally, you know, the last thing I wanted to talk a little bit about are sexually transmitted infections. Um, and you should suspect this if uh, there is purulent discharge with any evidence of sexual abuse on interview or exam. Certainly, you know, when discussing this, because it is such a sensitive uh, piece of information on interview, you may want to ask questions, things like if the child is ever left alone with a certain adult um, that is in the family or that's not that's not the mother or the father, um, or even, you know, um, someone who is outside of the family that they often spend time with alone. And on exam, um, evidence of sexual abuse include things like anal or genital tears or even evidence of ejaculation. And especially laceration to the lower half of the hymenal ring, usually between three to nine o'clock, is consistent with penetrating injury. At this point, you know, samples should be collected from the discharge and sent to a lab um, to look for things like gonorrhea, chlamydia, trichomonas. And this is also a good time to remind our ourselves that child abuse is something that requires the provider to report. So this is a mandatory reporting incident. Um, and finally, the last thing that we can look out for are things like genital warts, which usually can be diagnosed clinically, um, or if you need to, to use a biopsy. Nick, what about some non-infectious etiologies of vulval vaginal complaints? Yeah, I think one of the more common ones is the foreign body in the vagina. Mm -hmm. um, so, and foreign bodies can be really tough to diagnose too, because they really can present in a lot of different ways. There can be acute or chronic vulva vaginitis. There can be purulent discharge, a foul smelling discharge. There can even be bleeding. Um, the most common foreign bodies that are implicated in symptoms are often toilet paper um, and then small toys. Fortunately, small toys and other 
like pieces of toilet paper can generally be removed pretty easily by doing vaginal lavage. Basically just obtain a thin, thin catheter. That's like a tiny, tiny urinary catheter or something and attach that to a 60 cc syringe and you can place the tip of the catheter just into the vaginal canal and you can lavage several times. You can treat the area around the introitus with a small amount of numbing a lidocaine jelly um, if you need to. And as we mentioned earlier, if it's a large object or it can't be easily removed, the child may need sedation or anesthesia for extraction. Um, one other important foreign body to mention that is unusual but kind of important to mention just because it has a different presentation as a battery. If there's a suspicion for some reason that a battery has been placed within the vagina, this is a reason to proceed to the operating room for anesthesia. Um, vaginoscopy should really be performed by someone with expertise in this area because of the possibility of chemical burns. Trauma is also another cause of complaints that can just be vulvar trauma, um, and this can result in significant bleeding. Again, just like in adults, the vulvovaginal area is highly vascular. Talking with a child and with the family is important. Again, we spoke a bit about child abuse, but then you can also imagine things like straddle injuries, skating injuries, and you should try to correlate the history with the particular physical finding. If you can't correlate the history and the physical findings, that should raise your suspicion for child abuse. Just to kind of talk about some of those injuries, a straddle injury is usually in the anterior area of the vulva, including the mons, the clitoral hood, and the anterior aspect of the labia. There should not be injury to the posterior fourchette and the hymenal areas in a straddle injury. Again, this type of injury would suggest sexual abuse. If you are seeing significant vulmar trauma, you should assess the child's ability to urinate. If there's a large hematoma that's potentially obstructing that, you need to be able to drain the bladder with a catheter, ice, and give pain medication. If there's non-obstructive area for the ability to urinate, you should still give ice and pain medication. Most of the time, those hematomas will respond to that easily. And unfortunately, for all of these traumatic kind of injuries, surgery is pretty rarely needed um, and actually should be avoided if possible because of the possibility of superimposed skin infections there. All right, Faye, I think we talked enough about trauma at this point now. What are some kind of other issues that might bring us to meet a child in the office? Yeah, so um, a couple of things that I wanted to bring up include, you know, things that may be more common too in the postmenopausal population. The first of which is lichen sclerosis. And we actually talked about this in our previous episode and we talked about this in postmenopausal women. Um, essentially, this is a vulvar dermatologic disease that can cause itching, discomfort, and discharge and can even alter the um, architecture overall of the labia and the clitoral hood in general. So usually um, the area uh, around the vulva and the perianal regions will appear white. This the skin there may appear very thin. Um, you may have heard the term like onion skin or cigarette paper. Mm -hmm. um, and usually because of how obvious uh, these changes are, you can diagnose this with visual inspection. Um, a biopsy is rarely needed in the, case of, in, in the case of pediatric populations, though in adults you should biopsy the area because there can be some association with malignancies um, in adulthood, but this is usually not the case in, in children. Um, treatment is just like in the adult population. You should use super potent topical steroids, um, and you would start off again with more frequent treatment, potentially, you know, once a night, um, 
for a week and then of course um, bringing the patient back periodically to check in to see what the improvements have been and then weaning them down to a maintenance therapy of sometimes you know twice a week um, corticosteroid therapy at that point. The next thing that I wanted to talk about that's more common in the younger pediatric population is labial adhesion. This is most frequent in infants and young children with a peak incidence of up to 3% in the second year of life um, in girls. And usually it's due to a mixture of both inflammation and the low estrogen state. Labial adhesion, kind of depending on how severe it is, can lead to discomfort or even issues with urination um, and can lead to recurrent urinary tract infections and even um, urinary retention. In girls who have asymptomatic labial adhesions, especially if it only involves a small portion of of the labia, no treatment is necessary. We know that um, most of these issues of labial adhesion, if it's a small area and it's asymptomatic, will resolve um, once that child um, goes through puberty and starts to have higher estrogen in their bodies. If they are symptomatic, um, you should initiate treatment with topical estrogen or estradiol cream twice a day, um, usually applied with a small um, pea-sized amount on the finger or with a Q-tip. You can also do this with a little bit of pressure from the finger, and this is really easy to teach the parent or guardian, but you should also tell the parent and guardian that they should not try to manually separate the adhesion as this can cause pain and tearing and even bleeding. Most of the time, you will see a thin translucent raphe in the middle where the labia have adhesed, and that's usually where you'll tell the um, parent or guardian to place the estrogen. And then finally, another option is just topical betamethasone um, as an alternative or as an adjunctive topical treatment. And surgical separation is usually uh, pretty rare. One indication for surgical treatment would be for those with severe obstruction to urinary flow or for those who have urinary retention because of this. And then last of all, just briefly, I wanted to mention vulvar ulcers, um, non-sexually transmitted vulvar ulcers um, to be be, uh, specific. Usually these will present with systemic symptoms like fatigue, malaise, or fevers, um, and the etiology usually can't be determined, but usually um, can be caused by viruses like flu A, EBV, mycoplasma, or CMV. Um, It is important at this point to take a careful sexual history. and also to screen the child for uh, sexual abuse and rule out other STDs and also um, herpes simplex virus. Other exams to do would be like a CBC and a monospot test. And treatment um, includes essentially making sure that the child is comfortable, so helping with pain treatment. And then if some children are unable to urinate because of how painful it is, that person may need to be admitted so that they can get pain control in the hospital and also need to have a Foley placed until they're able to urinate again. Other things to rule out, especially in someone who's coming back to you repeatedly with vulvar ulcers and negative tests for sexually transmitted diseases or for herpes would be things like Bechet's syndrome um, or Crohn's disease. All right, next. So when children present with what seem to be vulvovaginal complaints, it can actually be an issue that doesn't involve the vulva or the vagina at all. Um, What are some other things that we should be looking for on exam or should be suspicious for um, if someone comes in with certain symptoms? Yeah, we'll go over two of the more common ones, particularly in young children. Um, The first is urethral prolapse, which is when the distal end of the urethra prolapses either partially or in a complete circumferential fashion, which is described as like a donut-like fashion. Certainly this tissue, if you've ever operated on it in a 
kind of adult woman, you know that it's friable and is prone to infection um, and is very, very sensitive tissue, and it's the same in children. Usually this presents with pain with urination, potential for some bleeding, and other vulvovaginal complaints that again, would likely bring a child to you as a specialist in this area. Kind of on exam, you may need to have a urologist involved actually to try and differentiate this from other things like sarcoma botryoides, if that brings back a step one memory, um, or a prolapsed yeah, wow. ureteroceal. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of again, the differential here can be challenging, um, but should be examined and potentially in a multidisciplinary fashion to really can ensure that this is the true diagnosis. If the patient's symptomatic, this can be treated just like with an older patient that has like a urethral caruncle with topical estrogen twice a day for two weeks. Um, and then you reassess at that point. The other non-vaginal issue that can present um, is pinworm, which is one that pediatricians kind of know already, but occasionally this might make it to the gynecologist's office I've too. I've never seen this ever. Um, regrettably, I have once. Oh, no. <laughs> but pinworm can cause vulvar symptoms as well, um, like the itching. That's classic with pinworm, but usually that itching, again, is perianal. It's caused by a worm, enterobiasis. Pinworm can get diagnosed basically just by inspection. There's a couple of different ways that you can kind of look. One is known as a paddle test where you place a plastic paddle, sometimes with some adhesive stuff pressed to the perianal area. And you put that on a glass slide and you can see the worms. The other is known as the scotch tape test, where again, you use scotch tape onto the perianal area and kind of in the same way, basically you just use something that's got some adhesive quality to it. So you can kind of pluck the worms up and then be able to see them. Um, kind of creepy to think about, um, but a very, very common pediatric condition. Treatment is with albendazole or mebendazole. Um, and when one person in the household is treated, you should think about treating the entire household. Um, and then similarly to other parasites, consideration should be given to washing all bedding and clothes. I certainly would if I was having dinner in my house. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> but hopefully this will be something that I don't have to have personal experience with. Exactly. Um, all right, Nick. I mean, certainly I don't think we were being comprehensive with all of the things that um, the pediatric population can present in terms of vulvovaginal complaints, but I do think that we covered many of the more common causes. So let's go ahead and sum up. Sure. So we started off today, again, focusing on a prepubertal population specifically. We noted that many times this group is going to be the first time they see a gynecologist. Um, and they may be referred from their family medicine or physician or pediatrician um, with issues that can be a range of with complexity or simplicity. Again, getting the trust of the patient is first and foremost. Um, again, we're typically pretty good at that as OBGYNs, but pediatricians are really good at this with kids and you may just have to adjust your strategy a bit. Try if the child's old enough to speak for themselves to really get them involved and ask what's going on. Get the child's permission to talk with their parent or guardian um, about what's going on further. With adolescent patients, have the parents or guardians step out of the room so that way you have time to ask those sensitive questions. 
Specific questions um, regarding these complaints should be things like assessment of vulvar hygiene, so showering habits, toileting habits, choice, choice of clothing. And then the exam specifically, most of the time the pediatric population um, will not need a speculum exam. Usually the exam can be performed mostly from inspection of the outer labia um, with the child uh, usually laying back on the table in a frog leg position or being held by the parent on their lap in that same frog leg position. Other things that can be done would be taking a look at the hymenal area, the urethral area, and a Q-tip test to see if there is a patent vagina. In terms of kind of the differential diagnosis that you may come across, again, with some things like itching, you may consider infectious causes. Again, these are less common in children, but things to think about include Canada and Gardnerella as well. Um, sexually transmitted infection, we spoke a bit about today. Again, suspect this if you're seeing purulent discharge with evidence of sexual abuse on the interviewer exam. And a reminder that any suspicion for sexual abuse requires mandatory reporting by physicians to authorities. Non-infectious causes of various vulvar complaints can include foreign bodies in the vagina, which again should be approached carefully, and then trauma to the vagina as well, where again you should try to correlate history and rule out the possibility of sexual abuse. Other issues include things like lichen sclerosis, which we also see in the postmenopausal population. Look for specific signs like white, thin skin around the vulva and perianal regions. And usually treatment would include superpotent topical steroids, just like in the adult population. Other issues include things like labial adhesions, which is more frequent in very young children and infants. Um, and this can usually be treated by topical estrogen if required. Surgical intervention really is only necessary if if there is urinary obstruction. And finally, there can be things like vulvar ulcers, which can occur. Um, certainly, while sexually transmitted infections should be ruled out, um, many times these vulvar ulcers can be caused by other viruses like flu, EBV, or CMV, and so a CBC and a monospot test should also be done. And finally, if patients present with multiple vulvar ulcers um, over a long period of time, start to suspect something like Bichette's um, syndrome. We closed with some non-vaginal issues that may also bring a child to the gynecologist, including urethral prolapse, again, where there's the distal end of the urethra prolapses, either partially or completely, that's treated with topical estrogen, but you may need multi-specialty help to kind of differentiate it from other things like sarcoma botryoides or prolapsed ureteroceal. Finally, pinworm was the other exciting one that we talked about caused by enterobiasis. Um, treatment is with albendazole or mabendazole, and you classically use either the paddle test or the scotch tape test to diagnose it. All right, I think that brings us to the end of our episode. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head on over to our iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating interview. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you want to give us some love, go ahead and go onto our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. If you give us a donation, we may give you some swag or a shout out on the show. You can find show notes for this episode and every single one of our past episodes on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com. And if you want to ask us a question, give us a correction, or just chat with us, go ahead and email us at creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. 